Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, we are officially into the AMTA season. I think this is the first episode that we've released uh, after this year's case uh, came out. We've had an opportunity to dig through and and look at this case, and I'm sure the community is is hard at work figuring out what they're going to do about this year's case. We're going to get back to that in just one second because we've got a great guest on the show today to talk about all things mock trial and to talk about this year's case. But before we do that, we want to go over one or two little housekeeping things uh, related to the show. So those of you who've been listening for a couple of years are used to the fact that we like to do uh, a case episode. And for the last four years, we've had the privilege of interviewing the chair of whichever case committee wrote this year's case. Uh, we're hoping and planning to do that again this year with Sam and Elise, the co-chairs of, of this year's case committee. Uh, AMTA has asked us to wait for a little while before we do that episode for a couple of reasons. So we're kind of holding off on that for now, but we are still planning on doing it. Looking forward to having a chance to chat with them. The other podcast related item that we'll cover really quick is we are so excited. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, we recently launched a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the mock review. We did that with the specific goal of hiring an editor. And the community support has been so fantastic and so wonderful that we have done that. We have hired an editor. This episode is going to be the first one where we're working with our new editor, which means it's going to be the first episode where we've got our new release schedule. So you're going to be hearing this episode on a a Friday if you're listening to it when it comes out. And that's going to be our new schedule. So starting with this episode, uh, I'm sure there will be a few exceptions here and there. But for the most part, every other Friday throughout the season, we're going to be releasing our episodes. So keep an eye on your feed in, on Friday mornings throughout the season to get our new episode. It's a great thing to listen to while you're on the plane or in the van headed to whichever competition uh, that you're headed to. Drew, before we get to our guest and get to today's episode, anything that I missed about how things are behind the scenes with the podcast? No, I think you covered it. I think that we, again, have just been thrilled with how how much support we have seen from the Patreon and in the Discord. Um, you know, I, I will continue to plug the Discord. If you're not already there, we'd love to have you. There is no financial commitment required. We just love to, you know, add more people to it, continue the lively discussions. And especially now that the case has been released, we're hoping to get uh, some fun discussions going there. And also, it's going to be a great way to uh, find out what questions people have so far and hopefully make that uh, eventually when we get to chat with the case writers, we'll have lots of great questions from all of you um, yeah. that you wanted to ask. So we're really optimistic about that. And again, just thrilled with the responses that we've gotten and excited to be getting more regular content out to everyone for sure. Yep, I totally agree. I hope that if you're listening and you haven't joined the the Discord at the very least, that, that you take a moment to join it because we, we want to continue to grow and expand that community. Well, that's enough podcast business for now. Let's get down to business for today's episode. Uh, since we didn't have an opportunity to talk to the case chairs yet, we, we thought, okay, who can we talk to who's got you know in-depth knowledge, both of AMTA as a whole and also of being on a case committee? And we couldn't think of anyone better than Anna Eldridge. I'm sure all of you listening know that Anna is the director of Rhodes Mock Trial. Uh, Anna is actually a 2002 Rhodes graduate. She competed for the program on the team in 2001 that won the national championship. Uh, She's a two-time Reynoldson winner as a coach uh, in 2013 and 2019. I don't have to tell those of you listening just sort of the the depth of ability that Rhodes Mock Trial has, but just to repeat it anyways, Rhodes has appeared in the national final round a record nine times. No one else has done that more than seven times. They've won four championships, which is tied with UCLA for second best all time. And Anna uh, was on four different case committees while she was working with case committees. Uh, She worked on the Dawson case in 2012, Bowman in 2014, Bancroft slash Covington in 2016, and Hendricks in 2018. So I think we've got the perfect person on to talk about mock trial generally and about this year's case. So Anna, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Absolutely. Um, I I do. I have to make one one comment uh, before we get too far into this, because uh, my my good friend Neil Shewitt would kill me if I did not let it go um, uncorrected that we actually lost to Miami in the 2001 championship round that I was in. Um, so we did not win, but we were there. Um, and I think it was sort of the beginning of my history of losing final rounds uh, that my teams had been in. Um, 
I think that's sort of my legacy. Uh, but it was still great to be there. Really proud of being in the championship round. But uh, I have to give the title to credit to Miami there. Well, I appreciate Anna, you setting me straight on that. Neil has been a great friend of the show. And so uh, I'd like to keep that uh, relationship alive as well. <laughs> so I appreciate you mentioning that. And of course, uh, Miami and Rhodes, two programs with such an illustrious and fantastic history in mock trial. So uh, let's, you know, and I, I really hate doing this, but I'm just going to do it anyways. Let's take a step back um, and let's go back to the beginning of your origin story. Anna, of course, you've done so much in mock trial over the years, but take us back to the beginning. How did mock trial start for you? Sure. So um, I always was somebody that loved theater and acting. Um, and that was what I thought my passion was. Um, but my brother is is still actually a professional actor in New York. And I didn't think my parents could handle the stress of two non-working actors in the family. So um, I tried to look for a way to kind of use what I loved about performing and do it in a venue that was a little bit more potentially lucrative. Um, and so I saw this thing called mock trial at my high school and I decided that I would sign up for it. It was actually called mock law, uh, in, in Arkansas where, where I competed. Um, and so I signed up my sophomore year and I guess I've been a mock trial addict ever since. Um, so, you know, that was kind of what got me into it. Um, and we were, we were a decent team. Uh, we went to the state finals basically every year, but nothing like what high school mock trial looks like now. Um, I really kind of only have one, I guess, interesting story from from high school mock uh, before I kind of got into more of what we think of as competitive mock trial now. Okay. So you said you've got one interesting story before you know getting into where we are now. So give us the scoop. What, what's the interesting story? So my, my senior year, um, I had, uh, a round against, uh, this private school in Arkansas called Pulaski Academy. Um, and I didn't know at the time that the person that I was going to be cross-examining and trying to destroy on the witness stand, like we all do, uh, would later go on to become a White House press secretary. Uh, so, yeah, I cross-examined Sarah Huckabee at the time, Sarah Huckabee Sanders now. Um, and we both looked like fashion tragedies. Uh, she was wearing, <laughs> I think, like a mint green pantsuit. I was wearing a short-sleeved, double-breasted, white plaid skirt suit. It was horrible. Um, I don't know why that's what sticks out in my mind, but when I watch the video, I just think nineties. Um, but yeah, it was kind of what you would expect. Uh, I asked a lot of what I thought were tough, hard hitting questions and she gave me very blunt, emotionless responses. So that's kind of how it went. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like, uh, she was practicing a skill that that maybe she reused later in life at some exactly, point. Exactly, exactly. I definitely see the similarities. <laughs> well, well, Drew, I've been asking questions for a few minutes. So sure. do you want to pick us up and talk about Rhodes Mock Trial for a minute? I would love to. Well, Anna, I got to tell you that I think that when I was first looking at colleges to attend as a, as a high school mock trialer, I knew I wanted liberal arts colleges. I knew I wanted small schools. And I have to say that when I came across Rhodes, I, at the time and still today, was blown away by how accomplished such a small school has become. And I think most people in AMTA probably don't realize just how small Rhodes is mm -hmm. because of how big you seem in the circuit. So, like, take us through a little bit of the backstory of how you guys took a school that has just 1,800 students to all of our listeners. Yes. 1,800 students go to Rhodes and has turned it into unequivocally one of the biggest programs in AMTA. Like, how did that happen? So I, I think so much of it obviously goes to my predecessor, Mark Pullman, who has been my mentor and uh, inspiration in, in all things mock trial, basically since I was 18 years old, uh, both in the classroom and of course in the competitive circuit. And I think what Mark did that, that worked really well, and it's something that we still do, um, is he always was looking at what, what other people who were doing well were doing. So if there's ever anybody out there that's listening, that's trying to start a mock trial program or get one off the ground, 
we ordered every video, or at least Mark did, but we still do order the videos of, of championship rounds. We watch what people are doing that works and figure out how to emulate that. And I think that's kind of what they did at the beginning. And then that's sort of been our process ever since. Um, in terms of competitors, you know, I think we're in a unique position at Rhodes. So uh, it's always been a program that uh, doesn't cut. So we don't cut people. If you show up and you want to do mock trial at Rhodes, you get to do mock trial at Rhodes. So whether that means we run four teams or five teams, we take everybody. Um, and we just kind of believe we can teach anybody to be a good public speaker and a, and a good thinker and um, a persuasive advocate. So that's always the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish with whatever student walks through the door. Um, and I think as a result of that, you know, the culture and the commitment from those students is really strong because we're externally competitive, but we're not internally competitive. And I think that creates that sort of family atmosphere that, that makes our alumni interested in coming back. It keeps the same students doing mock trial for four years. Um, and I think has really been sort of a signature part of what's made our program be able to survive through so many changes as, as AMTA has evolved. One thing that I've kind of always wondered is being kind of as small as you guys are, but being as as big in the community as you are, is that ever kind of a a fun draw for people? Like, uh, you know, not that Rhodes isn't a well-known school. Obviously, it's a very extremely impressive institution. But I mean, it's I feel like it's a cool opportunity to be like, hey, we're we're one of the best in this. We are a program that across the country, people know us, people fear us. You get to go and be a part of that. Is that something that you've seen kind of develop over time at Rhodes or is something that that is kind of a, I don't know, just I, I think it's kind of, it's so cool to me to see that happen for a program um, just that's coming from such a small school. And, and I feel like that would be something that would be interesting to a lot of students just to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, I think we're really lucky because I think exactly what you said is true. Um, people associate um, roads with mock trial. And I think that as a result, the college is really supportive of mock trial. Um, and there's no question that we benefit substantially from that, right? So there are lots of small schools that compete in mock trial that don't necessarily have the same institutional support or funding or resources or sort of institutional memory. And I think because we've been able to be such a large program and go to so many tournaments, um, and kind of maintain that, uh, the college recognizes our value, but then they also, mm -hmm. you know, help contribute to that success because they are so supportive. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, students, there are students that are, that are drawn here, I think because of mock trial. Um, but I think a lot of our students come in kind of what you were saying already thinking about going to a liberal arts college and they see this as something that the college does well. So they want to check it out, even if they have no public speaking experience. So uh, the most decorated competitor in our program's history is a, is a great mocker, great woman named Kelsey McLean, um, four-time All-American. And she had never done mock trial before she stepped into uh, our program. Um, and so she was somebody who was just a, a competitor. I think she did competitive cheer was coming to Rhodes anyway and just saw this as a way to be competitive at the same level that she had done in other activities in high school. So I think it's kind of a mix of people who maybe come here for that, but also a lot of people who just come to a liberal arts college and look at this as the way that they can be really competitive at what I always say is like the D1 level. Um, we're competing against schools much bigger uh, than we are. And so I think that's attractive to just competitive people in general. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think this next question, I want to even caveat it before I say it, because I think there are maybe, maybe 10 programs in the country that I would even be able to ask this question in good faith about. But unfortunately, in 2021, Rhodes did not make it to the national tournament. Mm -hmm. And again, that does not mean it's a bad season. For 99% of programs out there, making it to Orcs and doing well at Orcs is a huge accomplishment. But being Rhodes, being one of those few elite that it is truly surprising when you don't make it to nationals, can you just walk us through a little bit of what that was like and then 
what the program's reaction has been um, in response to having, I'll call it a down year um, for your history. Yeah, I think um, what's tough about it is I feel like it wasn't really a down year. It was it was a an unfortunate weekend mm-hmm. for us. And I think we all know, right? We, we all understand the game. We've all been a part of it. You live by the one-point ballot. You die by the one-point ballot. So, you know, in 2010, the last time we actually hosted nationals, we came within a half a CS point of not qualifying to the national tournament that we were going to compete in. Um, and that half a CS point was the difference between us being there and then ultimately finishing top 10 or not being there at all um, and another school being there. And, you know, it's easy in that moment to kind of forget that all the little pieces had to fall the right way for us to get there. Um, but you always kind of know, especially if you're a coach in the back of your mind, that all of those little pieces can fall the wrong way too. Um, and I think, you know, in 2021, that's a big part of what happened. I mean, our, our record was eight and four. We mm-hmm. lost two ballots by three points, one by two points, one by one point. Um, and, you know, our record was one that, that qualified at basically every uh, other work that happened. But mock trial is not all about, you know, how many ballots you accumulate or who your opponents are. Sometimes there is like a little bit of variance of luck that comes in. Um, and so I think from my perspective, it's very different, I think, than the student's perspective. So when I took over as the head of the program in 2014, but really since I've been back in in 2008, um, I was waiting for that shoe to drop. And it was such enormous pressure all of the time, knowing that I was kind of taking on this program with such a historic legacy. And everybody was looking at me to mess it up. Um, And so I think that was really, really hard um, every year, just kind of waiting for that. It's going to happen. Nobody can be this lucky. Nobody can keep squeaking it out. And we all know that mock trial has a luck element to it. Um, So I knew that that she would drop. I think for the students, it's, it's, it's different because... You know, the students that were on my team that year had done extremely well at other tournaments. We had won really competitive tournaments with that group. They were really talented. And, you know, I get to go back. I got to kind of go redeem um, many things this past year by getting back to nationals and doing well at nationals. Um, But the students that graduated didn't get that opportunity. And they're really the ones that I think um, this was the hardest for. Um, especially because you know we're not naive. We know that the online community is going to talk about it. We know that that the second we didn't qualify, that things were going to blow up on all of the forums. Um, and I think that was really hard for everybody to kind of anticipate because if, if you know you know that that that's what people are going to talk about. That's of course that's what people are going to talk about. Um, but it doesn't make it, I don't, I don't think, any easier for the students. I think it was a little easier for me in some respects because I knew I'd be able to kind of redeem that. Um, and so, you know, they're they're the ones that I, I kind of still feel really sad for. But fortunately, all of them are in great uh, programs, um, doing wonderful things. And you realize that, like, mock trial is not your whole life. And um, so they're great. Uh, and And I think for us going into this past season, we obviously had a lot to prove um, and really wanted to to get back there and um, and start fresh and and, you know, hopefully get to move forward without having that that enormous pressure of breaking a streak <laughs> that existed long before any of us were here. So now that that's Miami's problem. Miami can, <laughs> can have that pressure. Yeah. And, and, you know, what you were mentioning about, you know, people discussing it and just the, the pressure of that. I know that when it happened on, on the podcast that, that we talked about it and our sentiment was, you know, Rhodes is not down. Rhodes is still Rhodes. These things happen. You know, I think we talked about this year that that Harvard at Orcs was like a point or two away from not getting to mm-hmm. nationals and then they mm-hmm. go on and win the whole thing. Doesn't mean that Harvard had a bad year, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes... It doesn't break that way. And obviously for so many years for you all, you just had such incredible success. And, and I don't think anyone doubts that, that that's going to keep going the way that it is. Um, let, me, let me ask you sort of one more thing. And then I want to move us to talking about cases. Uh, and you've kind of mentioned this in the, some of the things you've said, but, but there's one thing, Anna, that you and I have in common that a few other folks 
in the circuit have in common, which is that we really have the privilege and the opportunity to run programs that are that are our programs, right? You competed for Rhodes, and now you you are the director at Rhodes, and and same thing for me at UMBC. Um, how does that just sort of in your day to day work? Right, that that obviously any program you'd be coaching at, you'd care about and, and that success. But you know, you're a Rhodes alum, you're a Rhodes mock trial alum, and and how do you think about that every day when you go about doing your job? Uh, that's a really good question. I think um, it's, and you've probably had this experience too. It it's great in the sense that you obviously know the ins and outs of of where you are and and what the culture of your program is like and what's important. Uh, in terms of the goals of your program and how to navigate within that and what the students are like and what they come prepared to do. Um, and I think all of that is great. I think it's the flip side of, of that is that you don't have as much experience working with other programs. So, uh, you know, I mean, I coached for a couple of years at Duke when I was in law school. I coached for a year, uh, a little over a year at Georgia Tech when I was first practicing in Atlanta back in like 2005. Um, and so I got a, a, a little bit of a glimpse into how other programs operate. But I, for me, um, I love it. I love being at Rhodes and I'm, I, it's my home and, and I feel really passionately about the school. But man, I would love to sit in on another team's mock trial practice and just see how they do things because I am confident that there are so many cool things that other people do that I've never even thought of uh, because I've always sort of been in this one environment. So uh, I think that's sort of the downside to it, but everything else is upside. It, it's so funny. I've had the exact same thought, right? Like I've been walking past another team's huddle and like, I'm not listening in, but I'm like, if how do they do that? Like, I'm just kind of curious because it's always, <laughs> you know, I've only ever known how, how we do things, but okay. So uh, part of the reason that we wanted to have you on the show was to talk cases. And we're definitely going to get to this year's case in just a minute. But you have such a rich and fascinating history on the AMTA case committee. You were on the case for, I think, basically my favorite case. I think for some of Drew's absolute favorite cases. Um, so let's just talk about one or two of those. So so you were on the case committee for the Danny Dawson case, the Whit Bowman case, the Bancroft and Covington case, and the Dylan Hendricks case. So let me just sort of ask a general question first. Uh, being on an AMTA case committee, I have to imagine that that's a rewarding but a challenging experience. So what is it like to be on a case committee and to be one of the people who's responsible for drafting the case that, that you know the entire community is going to use um, You know, for, for at least the first two of these cases for Dawson and Bowman for the entire year, right? For all the way through even nationals, but even in the later years that the whole community is going to use for most of the season? It, it is, I think rewarding um, and challenging is the perfect way to describe it. It's very, um, it's very stressful in the sense that you really do want to make a good product, but it's very cool in the sense that, especially if you've been doing this for a really long time, there's so many ideas that you can have that you want to implement or um, so many things that you've seen work that you just have a, a new wrinkle you want to add in. Um, and I think Especially um, if you've if you're a former competitor or you're a coach in this activity, um, and you've you've seen all these different permutations of how people interpret things or or how cases kind of grow throughout the course of a year, um, it's really fun to to have the opportunity to take things that were ideas you had about other cases and finally get to implement them. And I think that's the fun part. Um, but it is definitely also stressful, and I've I've had discussions, I won't say heated because that's that's too strong, but uh, we've had very passionate discussions in the past about things that we we felt really strongly about, uh, either including or not including. Um, and it's great that you get to have those kind of conversations about this like nerdy activity that we all are obsessed with, with other people who feel just as passionately about it, but aren't in your like little team bubble. I know you all get to do that all the time through, through this venue. And so it's probably very similar. Um, and maybe that's the best part of it is actually just getting to work with other people outside your program and, and learn how they think and process and, and plan strategy. So as Ben kind of alluded to, Anna, I think that you've really worked on some of, definitely some of my favorite cases. Um, obviously, I, I only competed with the Bancroft-Covington case and, and then the Hendricks case, but I'm kind of wondering, both, I, I really, I want to actually focus in on the Bancroft-Covington case for a second, because that case, 
to me was it was the first one I ever had done, but it was really unique. And I, I didn't realize at the time how unique it was that you have this whole dual defendant setup and that the you know prosecution really changes the way the case is going to be argued in a way that I haven't really seen since. Um, obviously, sometimes there are small changes, whether you call an expert or not. But I mean, changing down to what are we even arguing about? Um, what is this the 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 matter here? Whether it's entrapment or whether it's um, just straight bribery, um, and I I wonder if you can go back for a second because I'm just always curious about it. What the thought process there was of how we want to do that, why we want to make it such different issues, and then if you have any thoughts on having then done a case after it, why you feel like that hasn't returned. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll go backwards. I think the reason it hasn't returned is because it was so challenging for the students. And I think, um, you know, it, one of the goals of a case committee is to make a case that is accessible enough that people who have never done mock trial who are doing this for the first time are not so overwhelmed that they want to quit and not <laughs> actually do the activity, um, while also creating a product that can sustain so many invitationals and so mm -hmm. much examination um, and, and retread by the teams that are competing at the highest level. Um, and I think we were definitely thinking uh, a lot about the latter uh, when we, we, <laughs> we kind of crafted that structure. And I think the reason it, it didn't return in the same way in a criminal case is because we were a little bit more mindful of the former um, and thinking about, you know, making sure we didn't overcomplicate the case for people who were just trying to step into it for the first time. Um, so uh, I think that that might be why people have been hesitant to return. Cause as, as you know, I'm sure the prep work for that case was insane. If you were on the defense um, and uh, oh, yes. defense is always, <laughs> they always feel put upon, you know, I think every year the defense feels like AMTA is out to get them. Uh, I'm a defense lawyer, so uh, I'm very pro-defense in my normal life. But in AMTA, I feel like the defense just has the easier job. And so mm -hmm. uh, when you're crafting a case, you're always thinking, I think, at least in the committees I've been on, um, how do we make this case easier for the prosecution where there's more control because cases tend to trend defense as the year goes on. The defense gets stronger and stronger and stronger every tournament because they find new and uh, more exploitable holes. And so you really want to start the case off with like, I think a really pro prosecution mindset, especially mm -hmm. in a criminal year uh, where, where the burden is so high. And so for us, this was a way to give all the control to the prosecution uh, absolute uh, ability to say, okay, we can set what we want to do. We can make it um, as tight as uh, of a prosecution as we want based on what our skills are and kind of put the defense on their heels a little bit and how they want to defend it. And mm -hmm. for that reason, uh, you know, we did maybe make life a little more difficult uh, for the defense attorneys that were out there complaining about it. Uh, but ultimately the case ends up balanced. And I think uh, that's a successful product. So I think that was sort of the mindset going in of, of, of how do we, how do we really help out the, the P side of the case? Well, I will very briefly say that as someone who at the time was a part of the former group, as someone who had never done college mock trial before, that case made me fall in love with it. So I think it served both purposes. Personally, I loved the case. It was definitely an enormous time commitment, but I think that sets you up well. I think then you kind of learn, all right, this is this is what I've got coming. And like I said, I mean, I, I loved the case. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, okay, so I want to take a second, though, to like, all right, all these cases together. Having written so many cases, having participated on these committees, and as you've said, gone to work with so many different people, what is your overall thought on how you approach looking at a case? I, I feel like there has to be kind of a unique way that you're going to be able to analyze and break down a case, um, having written them so many times before, that I feel like might be really helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, so I think um, whenever I'm thinking about case writing, um, the thought is always on balance. So um, I, I think of 
everything from the perspective of cross-examination and I kind of move from there. So to me, cross-examination has the biggest impact on scores of anything in the trial, right? Because it's affecting the witnesses on cross score. It's affecting their directing attorney based on what they object to. It's affecting the cross examiner score. Um, it just, it, it has a lot of, of impact. Um, and so when I look at how to balance a case or when I'm thinking about structuring a case, and certainly when I'm thinking about reading a case and, and coaching it, I, I almost, it's almost like figure skating or gymnastics. Um, <laughs> When I'm writing, I like to think, like, what is the degree of difficulty of this cross? And so the prosecution mm. in in an ideal world has the same degree of difficulty of cross-examinations as the defense has. And I think cases that are imbalanced are cases where uh, the defense has all the really good cross points. Um, they can, you know, maybe their witnesses don't say as much substantively, so you know, it might be harder to come up with really great directs that are full of substance, but man, they're going to kill the cross-examinations and the mm. prosecution witnesses are full of substance, but they, they're they going to get subject to cross heavy crosses and they're going to not have as easy of a cross-examination to do on the other side. Um, and I think I try to fight against that as much as possible. So uh, making sure that defense witnesses actually have substance so that there's something for the prosecution to cross on and not writing in any cross points into the prosecution witnesses. So none of this like, oh, I once committed a fraud back in <laughs> 2007. Please cross-examine me on it, even if you don't know how to cross-examine properly. Because the defense is always going to be able to poke holes and it's always going to make their crosses easier um, than, the def than the prosecution who's got to try to establish something. Um, and typically are, are forced to walk that line between destructive and constructive crosses more clearly. So that's always the approach that I take when I think about crafting a case. Um, but also when, when I'm evaluating a case and I'm looking at it and, and my team and, and I are talking about role assignments, we're also always thinking, okay, what are the degrees of difficulty of each of these crosses? How does that inform who we want to call? We don't want to call three highly crossable witnesses on one side of the case, even if we like them, because then you're just giving up tens and you're taking point deductions mm -hmm. on your cross scores every time. Um, so that's kind of where my head goes on both of those, uh, those strategies. That, that is just fascinating to me because similar sort of earlier, Anna, to what you were saying about how, like, sometimes you wish you could sit in on another team's practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like getting to hear that approach of like how you look at a case and how you break things down you know, it's just so interesting because there are some things about that that I'm like, okay, that's kind of how I could look at it too. And other ways where it's like, that's totally different from how myself or I imagine Drew or others would analyze a case. And I think it really speaks to just the the challenge of this activity and the challenge of writing these really complex cases. So let's keep going with that topic because I think that's a perfect segue to getting us to sort of our final major conversation topic, which is this year's case, uh, Felder versus Kohler Campbell Air. Uh, it's a really interesting case. I know that um, you were on uh, criminal case committees and this is a civil case, but mm -hmm. even still, you know, obviously there's a, a lot of similarities. So I want to get your general impressions on this year's case. And I sort of have, you know, I guess a, a clarification to that question, which is obviously you're an incredibly experienced coach. You're also a very experienced case writer. So in sort of each of those roles and with the understand, understood caveat that I think everybody knows that we're not asking you to disclose all the theories that we're going to see roads running on, on the circuit <laughs> in, in two months, but speaking generally... I mean, if you want to tell them, we'll, we'll listen. <laughs> we'll edit it out and then we'll save them for us. But uh, <laughs> no, but in, in all seriousness, what's your general thoughts on the case and what have you noticed as a former case writer and case committee member uh, that has stuck out to you now that you're digging into this case a little bit? Yeah. So um, I, th my first initial impression of this case is, and I have no idea if this is intentional on, on the part of the case committee or not. Um, but uh, it feels like part three in a trilogy of cases that I've loved from the civil case committee. So um, I have a special affinity for the Everest case uh, because it was the, the year that I was in the final round, we did uh, the the Everest, uh, the Mount Everest case. Um, and, you know, I think, okay, 
that's the, the ground version. Uh, and then uh, we did the Neptune underwater diving case in 2013, which was the under the sea version of that. Uh, and this one is, is, is that in the air. So um, there's a lot of similarities, I think, in the structure of this case to those two cases. And that excites me as a coach, not just because I personally love both of those cases, um, but because those cases were really successful and I think are among some of the most popular ones that AMP has done. Um, and I think that's because the, the formula for structuring them works really well. Um, it, it has emotional stakes. You care. Um, there's it, the opening statements for this case are going to be great um, yeah. because you actually have a reason to actually care about these people and the fact that they're gone. You have a victim that's really sympathetic. Um, and I think that, that that's going to be a really exciting um, opportunity for teams uh, to, to show some, some different skills. It's not, it's not as super heavy character. It's, it's got a little uh, more balance among the types of witnesses. Going back to that, I think, traditional format of sort of your sympathetic or uh, emotional witness, then your character, then your expert. Um, and I think it gives teams a lot of room to to look at their team personnel and structure the way that they want to approach the case around what works for their team personnel, uh, which I think will mean we see a lot of different lineups of witnesses across the season. Yeah, you know, it's funny, that last point that you just made is one of the first things that I thought. And I think it speaks to, you know, I mean, we're, I'm huge fans of, of Sam and Elise, the, the case committee chairs, and also a lot of the people, you know, really smart people who are on this committee. And it really strikes me as a case that is written like like by teams for teams. Not that other cases mm -hmm. haven't been that way, but that you can look at this and go, all right, this year I've got three great criers. So it's like, boom, you're crying on A, boom, you're crying on B, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, yeah, I don't really have like that deep sympathetic witness. So maybe we don't go that route. We try to make it a more technical argument. And so I think that it'll add to sort of diversity of experience as the season goes on, just because, you know, you'll see you know teams really trying to feel things out and, and drew and i were talking about this uh not too long ago i think that whereas there have been some years where i feel like by even november and december you're seeing a lot of the same trials you've seen a lot of the same call orders i don't think that's going to be the case this year i think you're going to be seeing different things people changing things up uh you know throughout the year just because of the things that you mentioned that this is just a a deep well-written case with a lot of nuance to it uh, and I couldn't agree with you more about the opening statements part. I'm already excited to start writing opening statements for this case <laughs> and just like, you know, thinking about the the power that that this conveys and, and just the the story that it is. I was thinking you were you had we talked a little bit before this about Dawson. And I think one of the the Danny Dawson case from years back, and I think one of our goals in in writing that case was we really wanted it to be kind of a choose your own adventure product of exactly what Ben was just talking about. Uh, we wanted every school to be able to say what fits what we want to do. How do we want to try the case? And I think in order to do that, you have to have witnesses that are not so independent in they just offer, they're the only witness that offers any of these facts about this thing. And this witness is the only witness that offers any of these facts about this thing. So like in Dawson, it was, you had different perspectives on, on who was drinking what, and you could get the alcohol out through like three different witnesses, maybe in slightly different ways. And I think what's cool in reading the witnesses in this case is it feels very similar to that. It feels like they're, you, you're not going to be forced in a position where you can't meet your burden if you don't call all the experts because you're just missing a big chunk of the facts that you have to establish. Um, and you can kind of get those facts from a lot of different witnesses without it feeling repetitive if you do call more of them, um, but you're not forced to call them because it's the only way to get the facts in. So I think they did a really good job of uh, structuring the, the problem around giving people a real opportunity to do that without having giant holes for the closers at the end of the case. Yeah, I think all these thoughts are are. Totally. I totally agree. I think it's a really fun case from that perspective. One thing that I kind of noted early on about reading this case were a couple things to do specifically with the witnesses. For starters, the fact that this case has four side-constrained P witnesses, three side-constrained D witnesses, and then three swings feels pretty different than a lot of the previous cases, just where we have 
tons and tons of swing witnesses and you end up having to prep a thousand different crosses because you never know what the permutations are going to be or whatever. And it's awful. And I think it's, it's going back to one of your way, way earlier points, Anna, about how to cater this activity for different crowds. The nice thing about having three side constrained witnesses, at least for each side, is that it, it means that if you want, you don't have to prep a bunch of extra directs. Um, you can kind of know and guarantee, I'm just going to call the three I have, you know, it might be two experts, but we're going to deal with that. And maybe that's what's best for our team. And I just think it's kind of an interesting variety that that gives. I also wanted to say about the witnesses that I don't know, uh, I don't think either Ben or I could remember, and Anna, maybe you know of this, but it seems pretty unique to have a unrestricted or a deposition witness on both side of the case, um, both having a defendant and then a plaintiff that are both being deposed where they have a lot of freedom and a lot of latitude um, with what they're going to say. I think it's kind of a cool way, going back to the case balance point that you made, Anna, um, of kind of balancing that and giving both sides a chance to kind of, you know, do what they will with the deposition witness. And I will say for my part, I like seeing more deposition witnesses because that's much more realistic. I think that it's good to practice with depositions and get more used to using a deposition over an affidavit. Um, so I think it's cool that we're doing that. But in a kind of to formulate all of this just slosh of information that I'm tossing out there into a question, <laughs> what do you think of the witnesses and maybe the uniqueness with which um, they've been written into this case? Yeah, I think you've made some really excellent points. I think the 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 number of side constrained witnesses I hadn't thought about from that perspective, but I think you're absolutely right that that and and certainly you'll be able to talk to Sam and Elise about this and whether it was intentional, but it seems like a great way to kind of make this accessible while mm -hmm. also having the complexity for the teams that want it. So if you want to prep all the swing witnesses on your plaintiff side, you can do that. If you're the kind of program that that wants to to create that challenge for yourself because it fits your personnel better and you have the depth to do it, awesome. Um, but a team that's going to regionals and that's the only tournament they're going to has that ability. I think that's such a great point. Um, and I, I, the only time it would have happened, and I don't, I don't remember if it did with uh, with depots on both sides, was maybe the age discrimination case. Um, I don't remember whether the plaintiff in that case had uh, a deposition or an affidavit um, off the top of my head. I've sort of blocked that case out from memory, but <laughs> um, I think in, it goes back to like what I was saying about degrees of difficulty. I think it keeps things even between um, the plaintiff and defense. I think a lot of times people think, oh, we want people to call the defendants because they're they're crossable, right? And then the prosecution gets to do the defendant cross. Um, and that there's some truth to that. I mean, it, it's it's like a trade-off. Um, you you can have a really skilled crosser that can handle the affidavit list cross really well. And, and I think that is good. Uh, but it's nice that there's a balance there because then you have the same opportunity where um, a really good crosser uh, can have that same opportunity to cross the plaintiff witness, the same thing with like a really good witness that can handle basically anything that comes from whatever they're, they're creating it's balanced. And so I like it a lot. I like that both sides have an equal opportunity there, uh, to get the, the benefits and, and the challenges of, of getting to kind of make up what you want in that role. And that it's very even between the, the sides. I think that will help balance a lot. You know, Anna, we've talked about a couple aspects of this case, and there's another one that I want to discuss for a moment because I think you'll have some interesting insight on it. So this is the first case of my recollection since Dawson where AMTA has provided us with an audio exhibit. Um, at the very least, I think there might have been one where we had one briefly, but we don't have them very often. The most recent one that I remember was Dawson. And, and I have a question about that in a second, but I just I couldn't resist. I went and pulled Dawson up. And I'm looking at the special instructions from Dawson about, and I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast have no idea about this case, but there's an audio exhibit. It's actually a pretty powerful audio exhibit, but the instructions, you know, this year it's like, you know, you can use a phone, you can use a speaker. I'm just looking here. Uh, the exhibit must be burned onto a compact disc and played on a portable stereo in parentheses, AKA boombox or jam box. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And I just love I just love this so much that in, in 10 years we've we've gone from that to just play it on your phone guys. Just just like I remember I've never bought more D batteries 
than the Dawson year because you weren't allowed to use you couldn't plug it in. You had to use battery power and it was just crazy. But uh, I just couldn't resist that trip down memory lane because Dawson wasn't was my first case. So an audio exhibit is a fascinating element of a case. I remember with Dawson having so many conversations about do we use it? How do we use it? How do we use it effectively? So how do you see the audio exhibit in this year's case just kind of playing into how teams might approach uh, putting together you know, their particular theories? Yeah. So um, one, I'll say, uh, I don't know if you've picked up on this, Ben, but uh, I, I could I could do it. I could do the, hey, dad, it's me, Vanessa. And I don't know if you would start to recognize the voice. No. Uh, but yeah, that's me. That was you? Yeah, that's me. Um, I, I voiced- did not know that. Yeah, uh, we actually did that recording. My my really good friends from college were um, in an improv troupe, and then and then started a company called Chatterbox Audio Theater. And so we recorded that at their little studio uh, with the fake crash noises and everything uh, over and over and over again. Um, so my mind yes. is blown right now. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> I wish that the podcast audience could see my face because my jaw's on the floor. I had no idea. <laughs> Okay, yeah. that's so cool. Keep going. Yeah, so that was me. And then um, I also recorded, uh, we did have audio exhibits in both Bowman um, and in, but nobody used it in Bowman. Um, and we had one for, I think, a brief period of time in Bancroft and Covington. And I did that. I played Bancroft and I played Covington. And I think mostly oh, yeah. it was also just like yelling at my assistant to like get me a bagel with like really detailed specificity. So I've been a lot of different people in audio exhibits. Um, <laughs> and I think that they have worked to some extent in the past, but oh my gosh, the boom box conversation we had uh, <laughs> was the, the, the mockery even 10 years ago for using the word jam box in a case instruction was uh, <laughs> substantial and deserved. Um, it was horrible. And I don't, we try, I wouldn't let my students use the, the audio um, after like the first tournament of the year because two reasons. One, I could not stand the sound of my own voice. Um, and, and they would laugh because they knew it was, I was like, it kills uh, all of the tragedy. So you can't use it. Yeah. Um, and two, it just skipped that stupid CD would skip. <laughs> yeah. And then you'd have to replay it because you could, you could only play it if you played the whole thing. Right. And we had a real tragic I- I- situation where like the volume wasn't turned up and it got turned up halfway through and then the team objected and we had to replay it. Nightmare. So I think this process is way better. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how impactful it is um, in different rounds. And I, I think, uh, I'll be really curious to see how teams integrate it. Certainly, this is a much better format, uh, but technical issues will exist and will occur. And uh, I would say practice uh, a lot with your equipment because nothing is more awkward than being the directing attorney when your co-counsel is hitting a button and nothing is happening. <laughs> and you just kill all emotional uh, impact from it. Uh, but I like it. I love cool exhibits. I love that we're, we're going to have physical exhibits. That stuff I think is amazing. Um, especially celebrating the return to in-person mock trial, uh, waving stuff around a courtroom, playing stuff in a courtroom. I think it's all super cool. So I'm really excited for it. You know, what you were just saying was actually going to be my last follow-up on this topic. So I'll expand on it real quick, which is, you know, this is, you know, knock on wood, hopefully going to be pretty much a fully in-person season. We sort of had the, you know, last year by the end was mostly in person, but obviously we went back to virtual for some period of time. And the the case committee has given us several opportunities to use, you know, actual physical items in the courtroom, which seems to be, I would say, in mock trial more broadly at, at all the different levels, I think is kind of an emerging trend that you're seeing, you know, Top Gun and Trial by Combat and some of these other tournaments, uh, try to embrace things like that a little bit more. So can you say a little bit more about that and just how you think that actual physical exhibits could influence how this case is used? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that gives students um, the opportunity to to demonstrate evidentiary procedure, not just in the technical standpoint, but the, but gives it a little flair, I think is really cool. Um, you know, online felt like we were we were becoming a competition in graphic design and uh, you know, so much the star of, of a lot of those rounds became the demos that people came up with. And I love demos too. I think they're cool, but what I like about them is the way that students interact with them, which you kind of lost a little bit in online. And we were just like looking at pretty things. Um, so I, I love that not only are we kind of getting back to, 
real life courtrooms, but you know, a good attorney is going to look much better using physical evidence in a courtroom than an average attorney. And anything that creates a little bit of separation that allows the, the, the people who are at the top levels of this competition in terms of skill to show that that skill and show that differentiation, I think is a good thing. And uh, if you're a really good physical attorney and you can walk around with a piece of evidence and make it dramatic, then you're going to score more points. And as you should over an attorney that uh, is maybe a little bit less comfortable in a courtroom. So it's not, it doesn't just make it, I think more fun, but it also allows for that skill differentiation to really come through, uh, which I think is a net positive for everybody who wants as much competitive purity in the activity as possible. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, you know, virtual is necessary. We all understand why it was necessary, but getting back to teaching those in-person courtroom skills, uh, I think it's just such a unique part of this activity and part of why we all love it. Uh, so I think sort of our last case related questions before we, we start to wrap up here, uh, we, we've asked this question in past years, especially to case authors and people who've read the case. You're someone, of course, who, who knows a lot of different AMTA cases. So any past case references in this one that, that you picked up or any like little nuggets that you picked up on that, that maybe stood out to you? Cause I feel like the, the committee just loves to find new ways every year to, to toss in a reference here and there about about something from a case that maybe Drew and I have never even done. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, you certainly see. I, I, I drew the the parallel, I think, to to Neptune and, and to Everest. And I'll be really curious when you talk to Sam and Elise whether that was intentional or accidental. Um, would love to know. Um, <laughs> and you see the Neptune case law cited in the case law, which made me think, okay, this is this is probably somewhat intentional. And I think. Um, you know, we've seen so many references to the drug Everest in past cases, which also obviously comes from um, from that. So, uh, you know, that one, the, the case law stood out to me in that respect. The most random, I think, case um, or throwback in here is the ridiculously long name of whatever the firm was that they're alleging burned down Chuggy is on purpose. <laughs> it was like all the names of the criminal case committee from last year, which I thought yeah. was so random and funny. Um but I was like, why, why is it so? And it took me a second to realize that that's what they were doing. So I thought that was cute. Um, and, you know, I, I always love that AMTA is starting over time to feel more like a real venue and that we see case law repeated uh, from years to years. It's better for the students because then they can like learn the case law and use it in subsequent seasons. But uh, I love when the cases kind of build upon past cases to create new case law. So I'm always a fan of case committees doing that. And uh, there are a couple of instances where they've done that here. And I think uh, that's always um, a good treat for for coaches that they read these things every year, but also for students that might even see a case that they've argued in the past, kind of see the outcome, if it were real, uh, written into case law. I, I got to say, I agree. I think it's it's cool even now um, being someone that's slightly removed from the activity as I read the case when I see little nuggets of things that I'm like, oh, yeah, like I remember that. Or, I mean, there are things now that just have become part of the case law that I'm like, yeah, you know, I've argued the Kozak case like uh, that's mm -hmm. now become just established case law. And it's kind of fun <laughs> that that stays with it. So that makes a lot of sense. One thing I wanted to kind of wrap us up with, Anna, is that looking towards this season, Rhodes has a very special role to play, and that is as the host of Nationals. So just as kind of a wrap up, can you give us a quick preview of what your hopes are for Nationals this year? If you have anything um, that you can tell us about um, to get us excited, it's like a five and a half hour drive from Tulane, <laughs> and I'm very much so thinking about trying to come. So, you know, let us know what what's what what can we have to expect about nationals this year? So number one, please do come, please do sign up to judge, um, because I think <laughs> it'd be great. Uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to put a call out to anybody that has alums in the AMTA universe that's near Memphis. Um, we have a lot of great law schools that are in and around us. And so I know a lot of AMTA alums come and end up in places that are nearby. Um, we love having judges that have mock trial experience, um, especially when they're litigators who have mock trial experience. But certainly that call is out. Please uh, send me an email. I'll put you on our judge list. Um, I think what we're really excited about um, in terms of hosting again is 
you know, we're so focused, I think, on trying to make this a really good experience for the students and, and making sure that everything is about the students um, and celebrating the students who make it here. Um, so that's sort of been forefront of our mind. Memphis is a really rich, diverse, um, important city in a lot of ways. And we we're really hoping that everybody who comes here really um, embraces that. So the two courthouses that we'll be using, one is the Army Bailey Courthouse. That's the one we've used for orcs for years. Um, and uh, we'll also be using the criminal justice complex. Uh, but Army Bailey was like a really significant figure in um, the history of Memphis law, civil rights. He was the founder of the National Civil Rights Museum, a place that I hope that if you're traveling to Memphis, you take the opportunity to go visit. I know everybody's focused on competition while they're here, but it's such an incredible museum. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to provide details about uh, any discounts or or tickets or opportunities we can have for students to get to explore that space. Um, we're really uh, in love with the courthouses. We have uh, the beautiful the Army Bailey courthouse has been featured in basically every John Grisham movie that's ever been filmed in Memphis. Um, so it's very recognizable. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the criminal justice building, less beautiful, but bigger wells. So it's a trade-off. Um <laughs> the students that compete there. And we've locked in our first uh, three final round uh, panelists. Um, we're shooting for a really large final round panel. Um, again, our, our objectives with our final round panel is to really uh, bring in people we think that we would want to be judging us if we were in a final round panel. So people that represent um, the community that participates in mock trial um, and, and all of the different backgrounds um, that our students that are that are competing here represent, um, as well as you know a variety of of experiences in terms of practice of law, mock trial uh, experience, and things like that. I, our first three judges, I'm not going to name them yet because I don't <laughs> have the permission to name them, but. Uh, I cannot imagine a student would not be thrilled uh, to have any of these three individuals judging them. Um, I think they're all great. Uh, and we are really excited to, to have everybody here and really experience what all Memphis has to offer. Yeah, you certainly got me excited. You also got a, you you got ahead of me on asking who the three judges are. So fair enough, I won't <laughs> ask. Um, but that just sounds also exciting. Sounds like it'd be a really great celebration of of your program and of mock trial generally. Uh, so last question about nationals, and then uh, we will wrap us up. So you mentioned it. You guys have been hosting orcs for a long time. I'm going to assume you probably have a lot of judges with a lot of really great mock trial experience who've been judging this activity for a long time. So can you give us a sense of, I understand every judge is different, but what do you think Rhodes judges look for, right? What do you think the sort of the defining characteristics of your judging pool are that people can look forward to when they come to nationals this year? I think that's such a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because it when we... For example, when we were at TBC, I think Elizabeth was getting asked repeatedly by people in rooms, what is Memphis Judge Pool like? So I know a lot of people have a lot of <laughs> questions about it because, you know, we don't have a, a ton of invitationals in this region. Um, and, you know, Nashville judges are very different than Memphis judges, for example. So um, there's a lot of variance. I would say um, a lot of our judges here are... Uh, we have a lot of alumni who come and judge. So certainly of people who have a lot of mock trial experience, but our litigators here, um, and we draw a lot from the Memphis Bar Association, um, those lawyers are, uh, unless they're for a public defender's office or the prosecutor's office, a lot of them are sort of trial specialists, but they practice in a lot of different areas. Um, and they care a lot about being very personable. Um, and that doesn't mean you know, soft. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily mean likable. Um, it just means real. So uh, less sort of uh, focus on polished performance and sort of that sort of newscastery vibe. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot more thinking on your feet, being really responsive in the moment, um, and, and acting like a real lawyer. Um, so, you know, objection arguments, you could get pushed a lot of pushback on. Um, and the more adaptable you can demonstrate you are in round, I think those are the things that typically resonate uh, with our judges. Well, that sounds like an ideal way to have a nationals. That's that gets me really excited. 
I'm really excited to, you know, hopefully have a team there or get to judge there or whatever it is, because it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic event. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. It's been a, been a real pleasure. I know that this is a crazy time of year for, for you. It's a crazy time of year for everyone in the mock trial community. Uh, so we're really grateful. Obviously, best of luck to Rhodes this year. Best of luck as, as you uh, do the planning process for nationals, which I'm sure will take more than uh, a couple of hours of your time. Uh, but thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Um, and I look forward to seeing you out on the circuit. Yeah, we, we're looking forward to the same thing. To everyone who's listening, thank you as always for listening. Uh, we have a very exciting guest lined up for our next episode. Not going to tell you who it is, but uh, I will say that if you're on the Patreon and in the Discord, you already know who we've got lined up for our next episode. So there's sort of my last plug, uh, patreon.com slash the mock review. Speaking of the Patreon, we do want to take a moment to thank our gold patrons. Those are our $5 patrons. They include Don Martin, Ben Rathsom, Felix Batacaria, Henry Lehman, Kate Hayner-Slattery, Andrew Hinckley, Ian Lampert, the family of Daniel Sosa and Darius Peruk, Mike Romano, and several of our other gold patrons. We're so grateful to each one of you for your support of the show. Uh, Drew, any last thoughts before we finish up this episode? Nope. Just thanks again, Anna. It was great chatting with you. And I think that we have now kind of completed the the circuit of really super elite programs. And I'm just glad that we've gotten to kind of close that loop. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot. I know that I certainly learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It's a pleasure to be with you. Until we're in your feed next time, this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. 